The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shachet now presents his lecture, Who's in Charge? Controlling Your Thoughts Before They Control You. Okay, we're going to talk about something very important and interesting today that I think it's something that I have been working more on myself in my own life and therefore want to share with you as well because I think we can all benefit from this exercise. But I'm going to begin in the first instance by asking a simple question. Who's tired? I mean, you had a big lunch. You're tired. Good. Can I ask everyone to close your eyes? Just go ahead. Close your eyes. And in this moment, with your eyes closed, you're hearing my voice. And at the same time, let's be honest, you're probably feeling a little bit self-conscious, wondering what everybody else is doing. Am I the only one closing my eyes? And you're also probably having a whole bunch of other thoughts that are running through your mind. Just sit silently, if I may suggest, just for 30 seconds. Try not to fall asleep. Okay, now open your eyes again. And note the immediate difference, and that is simply this. When your eyes are closed, there may be all kinds of different thoughts that are going through your mind. But at the moment that you open your eyes and you're looking at me, you're focused only on the here and now. That's how the brain works. And now in the interest of killing time, let's close our eyes again. But this time I want you to do one extra thing. I want you, as your eyes are closed, to breathe real deep. And I want you, while your eyes are closed, to breathe deep and listen to your breathing. With each exhale, just let your body relax and keep listening to your breathing. Again, just for 30 seconds. Okay. Now, why did I just do that? You'll see. There was a man who came to the great Rabbi Yisrael of Rujin, and he said, Rebbe, I am a sinner. I'd like to return. I want to do teshuva. So Rabbi Yisrael looked at him and said, so go ahead and do teshuva. He says, I don't know how. I don't know how to repent. So the rabbi asked him, well, how did you know how to sin? And he said, I acted, and then I realized that I had sinned. Well, the rabbi said to him, the same applies when it comes to teshuva. Repent, and the rest will follow of itself. What exactly did the rabbi mean? What the rabbi was saying was something very deep and profound, which extends itself beyond just the realm of repentance into all avenues of life. It is the basic and fundamental principle of taking control of your mind and your thinking process. You'll be very familiar with the adage, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift, that's why it's called the present. And there's much truth to that statement because what it's really saying is, you can't change the past, you cannot yet know what the future holds. All you have is the here and now, the gift of your current reality. So why let what happened in the past or what you fear about the future define you in the here and now? Now you'll say to me, what do you mean? Why let my past experiences impact me? That's human nature. It's inevitable. My past does impact my present and my future. And I say to you, I know that's how we are conditioned to think. 
And I know therefore that's what we assume, that that's how it has to be. But must it really have to be like that? Let's consider the breathing exercise that you all just went through that I began with. I don't know if anyone here has ever done mindfulness. It's all the rage and there are parts of it which are supposed to be very good, parts of it which may be halakhically questionable and I am certainly not here right now to discuss that or the efficacy of it, etc. But as a common premise in mindfulness, there is a basic exercise where you are encouraged to think about something that happened in your past that to whatever extent still impacts on you years later. And then you're also encouraged to identify the feelings that that particular memory might be causing as you reflect on it. Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it sadness, etc.? When you think of something that triggers, it's going to evoke all kinds of emotions and all kinds of reactions. But you're then taken through a process where you're encouraged to sit straight, you're encouraged to close your eyes, you'll be typically lulled through words to get yourself into a deep state of relaxation, and then you're encouraged, as we did very briefly, to start breathing, to feel your breathing, then to start to feel your body from the tips of your toes to the top of your head. And all during the while, there is a voice that is encouraging you along. And then you're encouraged to identify your immediate feelings in that moment, which typically will be much more if not completely relaxed. Why is that so? What, what's happening in the process? Your mind is being completely focused on the here and now, on the present. When you are concentrating on your breathing, thinking only in that moment about your breathing, listening to your breath, concentrating on your body parts from your head to your toe, then just staying in that moment, as a result, you become very relaxed and the previous anxiety is dispelled. And secondly, you are no longer thinking about the past because you're being encouraged to focus all of your attention in the moment, in the present, on your breathing, on your body, etc. You get into the now, you get into the moment and you get into what is real. Everything else is concept. Right here, right now, that is your reality. Now again, of course, you'll say to me, but the past, I know it's concept, it's not real. It doesn't exist anymore but it still affects me. The event doesn't exist, but it still impacts my life. It still affects me in one form or another. And the future, I know it's not real because it hasn't happened yet, but I also know it's going to happen. It's going to become real one day. And when it does, when that day comes, well, knowing that already now affects me. The awareness of that already generates some kind of anxiety and some kind of fear in me. And you know what? You're absolutely right. But when you're holding on to your past, when you allow your past to define you, then you become exacerbated, always plagued with the question, how do I get rid of it? How do I get rid of it? How do I get rid of it? And so long as you keep asking yourself that, so long as the question lingers, you're stuck in your past. It's there, it's living on, it's controlling. You want to know how you get rid of it? Well, for the two minutes that you went through the breathing exercise before, you got rid of it. For those two minutes, you were literally focused on your breathing, which meant 
in that moment, you were not thinking about it. And this is my point. It's a big realization. The past only exists because you keep bringing it back up and you keep bringing it back up and you keep bringing it back up. And when you do that, you're going to allow for it to stay alive. You're literally continuously rehearsing your past in your head and thereby making your past part of your present and that's a problem. People often say, get over it. It's a highly offensive comment to make. Frankly, it's the worst thing you can say to someone who's dealing with whatever issue. What it implies is a complete disregard for the other person's experiences or emotions. What they should be saying is, learn to let it go. Let it go acknowledges your past and the fact that your past may affect you. And maybe, yes, maybe you need some kind of help or therapy or whatever to help you move on, but you can always control your own thinking process. You can learn to not allow for your past to define you in the present. When you did, again, that aforementioned breathing mindfulness exercise, and in that moment, you are effectively letting it go. It may only be for but a few brief moments, but nevertheless, during the course of the exercise, you let it go, you parked it, you put it in a box, as modern psychology likes to describe it. So the question is, what underlies that? What is really the secret behind that, behind putting it in a box. In Jewish philosophical terms, it's what we call hesach hadas. I would encourage you to always remember these two key words. The Rebbe, very often, in many instances, dealing with all kinds of people's quandaries, dilemmas, or even they're being plagued by all kinds of negative experiences, would encourage these two simple words, hesach hadas. Hesach Hadas translates as distraction, the idea of pushing something out of your mind. Part of human nature is the gift of forgetfulness, and I call it a gift because God embedded into our psyche the very real idea of things eventually becoming forgotten from the mind and heart. Could you imagine if we didn't or couldn't forget? Imagine what would become of us. We'd be crippled by life. We would have system overload. We'd simply never be able to move on beyond point A to point B. Every hurt, every heartache, every loss, every bereavement would remain an ongoing part of our everyday reality. So yes, forgetfulness is a gift where with the passage of time, you're able to overcome trauma and whatnot because the experience underwent becomes a thing of the past. The Talmud tells us that it is a zera, it's a divine decree that the deceased, the dead, become forgotten from the heart after 12 months. What does that mean? Not that we forget our loved ones, only that we're not always thinking about them in the same way, with the same intensity, letting the enormity of the loss completely consume us. Sure, there are moments and experiences that we encounter which suddenly trigger and evoke those feelings coming back even after a long period of time. But note the wording, a divine decree. God introduced that, if you will. God embedded that into the psyche, into the reality of man. And to all intent and purposes, that is a good thing. It is a gift. But sometimes 
We dwell on something so much. We choose not to forget. We fight the system. We fight against that divine decree, if you will. And it becomes therefore embedded in our psyche. It gets stuck there and it takes over our lives. It's not that you can't push the thought out of your mind and distract yourself with something else. It's that the thought comes into your mind and in that moment you think about it and you embellish it and you allow for it to grow and you keep it alive. And that's where you have to take control of your mind such that when something negative penetrates, which triggers you, yes, you have a choice in that moment to either think about it more and more and more or to literally distract yourself, to push those thoughts out of your mind and move on to other stuff. And I say to you, you'll be amazed how fast you will, if only you want to, be able to let it go. Maybe not permanently, but certainly as often as you consciously allow yourself to let go. You know, there's a famous anecdote told of two scholars who were journeying together when they came to a river and there was a distressed woman standing there perplexed as to how she was going to get across. And one of the rabbis hoisted her upon his shoulders and carried her across the river before putting her down on the other side. And the two rabbis continued quietly on their way. The other colleague lost in thought and finally unable to contain himself anymore. He's just turned around and he says, you know, I, I, just, I just don't understand. He says, what is it? He says, how could you have allowed yourself to carry that woman like that? It's kind of immodest. To which the other replied, the difference between you and me is that I put her down on the other side of the river. You evidently are still carrying her. <laughs> and you see, that's what we do. We carry our past with us. We keep it alive. But it is a choice decision. Whether you like it or not, we can control our thinking process. You have control over every single organ in your body and your brain, and by extension, your mind is no exception. If you think about what Kabbalah tells us, how man is comprised of three primary faculties, and that is machshava dibra your thought, your speech, and your action. And of course, how absurd would it be for anyone to say, oh, I can't control what I say. Or if you were to say, I can't control my actions. No one would ever accept that. Well, why should your thinking process be any different? Sure, it's a little more refined, it's a little bit more subtle. But in the same way, you can control what you say and you can certainly control what you do. No less is the case in respect to your thinking process, and you can control what and how you think as well. This term, hesachadas, where was it first introduced to us? Actually, quite curiously, it's found in a negative context. It's found in the Talmud, and it's referenced also in Jewish law. And it is in this context. Consider a law that when one is wearing tefillin, they, says the Talmud and halacha, should not be ma'asiyah das. They should not take their mind off the fact that they are wearing tefillin. When you're wearing the tefillin, you have to be conscious of the fact that you're wearing them. As you make a bracha, a blessing, before putting on your tefillin, then you need thereafter to be aware of your tefillin being on you at all times. The blessing and the mitzvah have to remain in constant sync. Only here's the problem. Are we really thinking about our tefillin all of the time when they're on us? Are we constantly aware of them 
as Jewish law really mandates. I mean, it's something that is high ground to be continuously considering how it's there all the time. And actually, it's not my question, the Talmud itself and Jewish law raises the concern. Moreover, once upon a time, believe it or not, people used to wear their tefillin pretty much all day long. Surely they weren't always thinking about them, even as they were wearing them. And frankly, even today, when you're praying in tefillin, or people learn thereafter in tefillin, so the mind isn't always on the tefillin. Your mind is on your prayers. Your mind is on the piece of Talmud or the Tanya that you're learning, etc. So it's inevitable that our minds are going to be off the tefillin at one point or another. So what does Jewish law mean when it says one should not be masiach das, take their mind off the tefillin? What constitutes hesech hadas, which Jewish law is concerned with? Obviously, we need to define what that hesech hadas really is. And the answer is, when one is wearing tefillin, but involved in frivolous activity, by definition, in all other circumstances, even if you're not consciously thinking about your tefillin, but they're on your head, and they're on your hand, and therefore consciously, however subtly, or even subconsciously, you are still very much aware of them. When, however, you are involved in something that is the diametric opposite of the sacred state you should be in when wearing tefillin, that is, as per the words of the Talmud, when you're involved in frivolous activity, then even as you're wearing those tefillin, your mind is completely and totally not there. Such is the reality of human nature. When you're involved in some activity whereby you are completely and utterly distracted, in our context, frivolous activity, then we can assume your mind is no longer on the tefillin, and that says Jewish law is a problem. That is hasechadas. But the takeaway from that is that the very notion of hesachadas is the idea of completely distracting yourself from something. And in as much as in the context of tefillin, Jewish law sees that as a negative, precisely because your mind should not be distracted and should not be off the tefillin that you're wearing, it does reflect a certain truth. That is a tool that is available to us within our own capabilities that can be used in other contexts, not least in life in general, as a positive, taking your mind off whatever the particular issue. In fact, here's another interesting point to consider in this context. The term is hesachadas, distraction of the mind. But in one curious instance, in the Jerusalem Talmud, the term that is used is hisiadata, which means a journey of the mind. And by definition, you're literally taking your mind out of this one place that you are at, on a journey to a distance, to an altogether different place. You have the power and the cognitive ability with which to be able to do that, to take your mind and your thinking process on a journey. There is a statement, a categorical statement made by the Zohar, which says, The human being and his thoughts are identical. You are what you think, and what you think, that is what you are. And therefore, wherever your mind is, that is wherever your thought is, that is where you are. Wherever you place your thought in your mind, that is where you have taken yourself. You are the captain, you are the pilot, you are in the driving seat. Yes, make no mistake about it, you control the journey. In fact, using the aforementioned example, let's talk about it in the context of repentance. 
A cardinal principle in Hasidism in the context of repentance, again, is the idea of hesachadas. Let me explain. Teshuva, repentance, is effectively a journey. What is teshuva? We translate it as repentance, which in essence, of course, is what it is. But it's really made up of two words, toshuv hey, which means returning to God. You're taking a journey. Sin, transgression in Hebrew is avera, which means crossing over to the other side, to the side of impropriety. And teshuva, therefore, is returning back. It's a journey. You end up in the wrong destination, and now you return back to the right destination. Problem with teshuva, as we understand it is, it's long, it's protracted, it's a tedious process, it's such a long journey. We sit and we lament the past, we reflect on the misdeeds, we feel miserable about what we did wrong. We may put on sackcloth and beat our chest endlessly and we hope that God has forgiven us. That's how we understand teshuva, right? And that understanding is so fundamentally and utterly misguided. In fact, it's totally and utterly flawed. It follows the same principle that we discussed until this point. If you're gonna dwell on your misdeeds, then you're keeping the germ alive in your minds, you're nurturing it. It remains existential and it's a problem. For as long as you're gonna be sitting there thinking, oh yeah, I ate the cheeseburger, oh yeah, I ate the cheeseburger, oh yeah, I ate the cheeseburger, well guess what? The cheeseburger is staying very much alive in that moment in your mind and the next time you see one, in all likelihood, you're going to go and eat it again. It's a problem because the past remains very much a part of your present. That's not a journey from the place of impropriety back to God. That's like driving to God, but you keep looking back at the impropriety in your rear view mirror. And you know what happens when you drive looking in your rear view mirror rather than in the road in front? You, know, you risk crashing. You see, friends, everything is energy. Our thoughts, our feelings, they emit a vibration. And what we send out to the world is what we receive back. It's the basics of Jewish thought and frankly, the fundamentals of quantum physics. That means that wherever and whatever we give our attention to, wanted or unwanted, it grows. If you focus on happiness and you focus on joy and you focus on satisfaction, you'll experience more of that. But if you're gonna focus on pain and you're gonna focus on regret and you're gonna focus on guilt and you're gonna focus on other anxieties that might otherwise consume you, you will experience more of that. Think about it. Have you ever tried to rid yourself of stress only to have found yourself getting more stressed, especially when you knew you shouldn't get stressed in the first instance? So you tell yourself to stop worrying only to have suddenly found so many more things to worry about. It's the same thing with teshuva or anything else besides. Trying to get rid of your past needs to be done not by way of thinking about your past, rather simply hesachadas, distracting yourself, focusing on the here and now. You engage in the positives of concentrating on the resolve rather than the regret. Resolving for the future is far more effective than dwelling on your past. If I may quote her, Mother Teresa famously said, I was once asked why I don't participate in anti-war demonstrations. And she said, I said that I will never do that. But as soon as you have a pro-peace rally, I'll be there. You see that? An anti-war demonstration, it focuses on war, which triggers feelings such as frustration or anger and hopelessness. A pro-peace rally, on the other hand, focuses on peace. 
and it generates feelings of calm and serenity. And the same goes for letting go in life and teshuva in particular. Unless you're able to truly let it go, meaning that you withdraw your attention completely from it, you're more likely to continuously focus on the unwanted and therefore draw more of that into your life. But when you focus on the positive, when you focus on the resolve going forward, then frankly, it's an upward spiral from there. Maimonides makes a categorical statement when telling us that the basic principle of teshuva is azivatachet, which means abandoning the sin. That's it. And abandoning the sin doesn't just mean the literal, in the literal practical sense of not going back there. It also means in the context of your own mind. Many Jewish commentaries and philosophers observe so, sin itself, it's time consuming. It's an evolutionary process. First you think about it, then you scheme, then you figure out the who, what, when, and where, and then you do it. Teshuva, on the other hand, in the worst of cases, is absolutely immediate. It's a literal momentary decision to tear oneself away from the sin. It's about letting go. In fact, this feature is even in Jewish law. The Talmud and Jewish law tell us that when a man is standing under a chuppah and he places the ring on his wife's finger, or his bride-to-be, wife-to-be's finger, and he says, Behold, you are betrothed to me with this ring in accordance with the law of Moses and of Israel on condition that I am an all righteous man. Even if everybody sitting there at that wedding happens to know that this is the biggest low life and biggest row going, nevertheless, the betrothal is binding. You know why? Because in that precise moment, he may have had a genuine hear her chuva. He might have had a genuine resolve to abandon his negative past and head on a course of positivity going forward. And that's all that's needed. That's all that's required. That's the hesachadas, putting all the negative out of his mind and resolving positively for the future. That's how instantaneous and genuine the effects are. It's about the resolve to move forward, letting go of the past. Three times daily, we say in our prayer service, reference from the Torah portion, and you shall know today and return to your heart. How do you return to your heart? How do you do teshuva? By knowing today, your mind, the single thought, the momentary meditation of teshuva, taking control of your mind and parking the past is sufficient to move man from the greatest depths to the greatest heights. So as an incidental point, newsflash, when you come into shul and you fast on Yom Kippur for 25 hours, that's not going to do the trick. Fasting, self-mortification, might be means through which man expresses remorse. They may be acts of purification, yes, of self-cleansing, yes, but they don't constitute teshuva, actual repentance, because, you know, everything in creation, as Jewish philosophy tells us, is categorized in terms of both matter and form, or body and soul, if you will. The act of the sin, its external manifestation, that's the matter, that's the body of the sin. But the thinking that went into it, the will, the passion, the desire, the scheming, the yearning that generated the transgression, that's the form, that's the soul of the sin. You know, they tell of a man who came home one Sunday morning after prayers at his Chabad house, carrying this huge half-eaten cheesecake. 
And his wife looks to him and says, I knew it. You're weak. You're timid. Your diet, it lasted for all of three months. I knew you had no self-control. And he says, whoa, whoa, slow down, woman. There's a reason for this. She says, really, I'd love to hear it. He says, you know how I always make a point of avoiding going down Fairfax Avenue because of Schwartz's Bakery? So whenever I leave Chabad House on a Sunday morning, I take a detour so I don't have to pass the bakery and I don't have to have the temptation. And she says, yes, and what's your point? He goes, I don't know, today I left Chabad House and all of a sudden I find myself driving down Fairfax Avenue. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever. And the next thing I know, I'm driving right past Schwartz's Bakery. And the next thing I know, I see this cheesecake sitting there in the window and it literally has my name on it. And she looks at him and says, and, and what's your point? And he said, I told myself, you know what, maybe this is a sign from God. She says, really? Yes. And she says, you know, honey, how it's always impossible to find a car space, a parking space, right outside Schwartz's Bakery. And she says, yes, what's your point? He said, well, I looked up to the heavens and I said, dear God, if this is a sign, if that cheesecake is meant for me, then let me find a car space right outside the bakery. And she says, and? He goes, and would you believe it, four times around the block and I found a car space right outside in front. <laughs> you see, for three months, he controlled his yearning. Yes, he was on a diet, but the desire was always there. He may have controlled himself, but in all likelihood, he was thinking about cheesecake. And that's why he was able to fall off the wagon ever so quickly. The past was always alive and became very much a part of his present. Fasting, self-mortification, it attacks the body. It purifies the matter from the sin, but it doesn't hit at the root, the essence, the soul of the sin. And therefore, whilst the exterior associated with the sin is no longer, the essence still remains, allowing the sin to always reemerge. Why is it that so many people, however much time they might have to spend in jail, still reemerge, and when they emerge, they reoffend? Because in as much as the punishment is self-mortification, it strikes at the body, it doesn't get to the soul. Apart from leaving the guy hanging around riffraff, who actually sits down with him to talk through and discuss the motivation to get to the core? Because it's only the elimination of the thought, the intent, and the desire that caused the sin, which is really the essence of all of teshuva, that will eliminate the soul of the sin. When you deprive the soul, then, and only then, does the sin, or the cheesecake, or the temptation, or whatever the negativity that plagues you will cease to exist in its entirety. To be sure, introspection is essential. You have to learn lessons from your past. Analyze it, think about it, talk about it, but take control of it. Don't let it control you. Don't dwell on it, not until you're strong enough to do so. In the meantime, just let it go. That's the essence. And let's take this one step further still. How many times have you found yourself maybe sometimes asking the question, what if? What if is a question that often is used in the context of counterfactual history or alternative history. Cambridge sociologist Jeffrey Hawthorne made a whole counterfactual history, turned the whole idea of counterfactual history into an academic study. But at its core, it remains a hypothetical exercise. It's left up to our imagination to consider what might have happened, what might have otherwise occurred. You know, there are about a select few Bible stories that really capture the imagination of the reader to contemplate the enormity of the what if, what would have transpired, to consider the actions, the motives, and always the what if. 
What if Adam and Eve had not eaten from the tree? What if Abraham refused to bring his son Isaac as a sacrifice? What if Joseph's brothers hadn't sold him down to Egypt? What if the golden calf never happened? The episode of the spies never happened? What if Moses indeed spoke to the rock instead of hitting it? We can contemplate the what ifs of life in almost every scenario. What if I didn't marry that person? What if I had taken that job? What if I had met that person sooner? What if I made a right instead of a left? Is there value to consider the what ifs of life? On the one hand, it's wishing that you could go back in time and change the reality. Unfortunately, what you should have done, it's now irrelevant. There is no delete button in life. They ate from the tree, they sold their brother, he hit the rock. There's no denying that. What happened, happened. On the other hand, what if can be a great learning curve? I can't change the past, but I can learn from it. I can move forward from where I am. I can analyze what might have happened if I had done things differently, but only in order to look to affect that change now. Because if you can seriously imagine the potential outcome had you done things differently in your past, well then why aren't you doing those things differently now? Granted, some of the past is unalterable, but so much of your future lies in your control right now. We choose whether or not we want to regret something. We choose to live a life filled with what ifs. I get it. We've all done something silly in our lives, but haven't we also learned something from it? Didn't it make us a better person to some degree? If the answer to that is no, then you haven't done enough self-reflection. You haven't transformed the what if into a learning curve. But if you dig back into your personal history and you dig up those bones and ask the question, what if, what can you learn from it? We don't want to dwell, as we said until now, on the past in a negative manner. But we can learn from it, we can move on, and we can make the necessary adjustments so that it doesn't happen again in the future. You know, when I was in grade four, I had a teacher called Rabbi Lichter, and he was explaining to us the difference between heaven and hell. Why on earth a grade four teacher was already looking to teach a bunch of 10-year-olds about heaven and hell? I don't know, but there's one lesson he taught us that really stayed with me. Because the truth is, we all have our own perception of what we believe to be heaven and hell. Heaven, we imagine, is a place where people waft on clouds with halos above their heads. In fact, I went to visit someone the other week, his name is Zale, and he told me that he believes they even play tennis in heaven. He told me that he would passionately debate this point for years with his tennis partner. Do they or don't they play tennis in heaven? And they agree that in the event that whichever one of them passes away should come back to the other and report to them on what happens. He says, so my tennis partner, Sadie, he passed away. And he says, and last week he, he came to me in a dream. I said, yes, and he says, and he says, hey, Zale, do you remember the, the deal that we had? I said, yeah, well, he told me what's going on. He goes, well, I got good news and I got bad news. He goes, go on. What's the good news? He goes, the good news is that you were right all along. They do play tennis in heaven. He goes, I knew it, I knew it, I told you. He goes, well, wait, what's the bad news? You're playing center court next week, Friday. <laughs> we also have our own perception of hell. Hell, we think, is smoke and pitchforks and hot fire much like the man who arrived at his Florida holiday resort and then sent an email to his wife, which mistakenly went to the wrong address and arrived in the mailbox of a recent widow who upon reading it fainted. It read, hi, I've just arrived. I look forward to you joining me. 
Everything is set for your arrival next week. P.S. It sure is hot down here. But friends, that's not heaven and that's not hell. What Rabbi Lichter did teach us, and I later came to learn as a fundamental teaching in Kabbalah, is that when our time is up and we, become, we come before the heavenly tribunal, they're going to show us two images, just two images. One of what we became and the other of what we could have become. Imagine buying a lottery ticket each week and you play the same numbers each week. And one week you get fed up and you choose not to buy in. That's the week in which your numbers actually come up. How would that make you feel? There's nothing you can do about it now. That feeling would crush you. Multiply that by an infinite amount, and you'll get something, though hardly much of an idea, of what you will feel when they show you those two images upstairs. Each of us has a preordained destiny. God has a master plan and created each of us with our own unique intended goals, purposes, and missions. Here, however many billion to one odds, there are maybe a chance your numbers could come up again. But there, there it's game over. There's no going back. And yes, when you look back on your life and you realize what if at a certain interval you would have become CEO of the company, but because you chose to make a wrong turn, you ended up in the mailroom, well, there's no turning back that clock. And frankly, that hurts. That's hell. But what that says to me is that the very contemplation and consideration of what if is effectively hell. It's a question invariably reserved for another time in the hereafter, when you might have to go through that necessary painful process. Right here, right now, what if is a catalyst and should only be a catalyst for growth, for change, for living the way you were meant to be, for experiencing your heaven still here on earth. So next time you feel a what if situation coming on, stop, reflect, realize the what ifs and the should haves in and of themselves will eat your brain. Love the good times, learn from the bad. It's okay to make bad decisions. Sometimes it's where we learn the most. But the way to move on from those choices is not to wallow in the past. Not to wallow in the what if. Accept them, learn from them, move from them. And it's then that you will truly flourish and grow into the person that you're meant to be. And so I'm gonna leave you with this final anecdote. One of my most favorite stories. A 19th century rabbi known as the Raza, Rabbi Zalman Aaron, a pious chassid and an equally very successful businessman. And on one particular occasion, a deal went horribly wrong and he lost an absolute fortune. Many fellow chassidim heard about this and they went immediately to console him. So imagine their utter dismay when they see him sitting in a study hall, completely immersed contentedly in Talmudic passage and study. And they look at him and they say to him, how could you be sitting here so relaxed after something like this happened to you? And he looked to them, looked at them, what would you do if you were in my situation? So one chimed in, what do you mean I'd have a nervous breakdown? And the other looked in and said, and, and I would have been crying my eyes out. And the Razel looked to them and said, and in 10 years from now, how would you be feeling about it? Would you still be crying? Would you still be having a breakdown? He said, of course not, they replied. Then it would be a bitter memory, but we will have moved on. And the saintly rabbi looked and said, exactly. I'm just like you, just a little faster. I've already fast forwarded 10 years. We all have issues. We all have concerns of sorts against which we also have goodness and things to be grateful for. Yes, 
Stuff happens. Life doesn't always go to plan. And maybe along the way we did some things wrong and we feel bad about it or we experienced whatever struggles and challenges in our past. But to be consumed by it has never helped anyone and isn't going to do anything other than digging a deeper hole. It's not going to help you to move on. Hence the tactic of Hesse Hadas, learning to let go. Life goes on, diversion of mind, distracting, letting go. It may not be easy at first. After all, people love to hoard things and that includes hoarding your thoughts, your experiences, etc. Not realizing that you're only harming yourself and frankly, causing harm to others in the process. If you don't make the conscious effort to decide what you allow into your mind, then you're allowing weeds to grow and to spread. No matter how smart you are, no matter how savvy you are, no matter how inspired you are, if you don't stand guard at the door of your own mind, then you are giving the tacit approval of the disempowering, disenchanting, and disillusioning. The ultimate breakthrough happens by conditioning your mind every single day about how to let it go. Feel, feed yourself empowering stories. Surround yourself with people who make you better. Put yourself in peak state. Work on cultivating a thriving garden instead of a dry patch of weeds. It's the small rituals that you do every day that build that momentum and ultimately lead to massive change. And frankly, you owe it to yourself. And again, you owe it to those affected by you. The past is the past. Now it's time to fast forward to the future. And that is completely in your own hands. It's what we make of it. I know it's high ground, but each of us can certainly get there. And it's then that you will truly flourish and grow into the person that you are always meant to be. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.